0: Welcome to Helix Talk, an educational podcast for healthcare students and providers covering real life clinical pearls, professional pharmacy topics, and drug therapy discussions. This podcast is provided by pharmacists and faculty members at Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining
1: advice from a qualified healthcare provider.
0: And now, on to the show.
1: Hey Helix Talk listeners, just a quick note, this is episode 46, which is a continuation of last episode's Self-Care of Gastrointestinal Disorders. We split up the two episodes because it got a little bit long. Last time we talked about heartburn and dyspepsia, and we'll go ahead and go right into Self-Care of Constipation. So moving on to constipation. Again, thinking about who is not appropriate for self-care is probably the first thing that you should be thinking about when patients approach you with constipation. And I can tell you from an ICU point of view, we see plenty of patients with bowel obstructions and very severe gastrointestinal problems that would definitely never be appropriate for self-care and oftentimes need surgery. So we have to be thinking about who should we be recommending therapies to and who should we be turning away and referring them to, you know, a physician or other healthcare provider.
2: Again, I think, and then also looking at some of the limitations about, you know, looking at non-pharmacotherapy is is a perfectly appropriate thing to do here right this is one i have to kind of be careful about mentioning to both my clozapine patients because there's a fair amount of using the antipsychotic on a clozapine leading constipation but then also being careful how i say this to my warfarin patients so we think about things like drinking plenty of fluids eating better is a big one so again looking at those fruits and vegetables that contain fiber again being aware of what it may do also the double-edged sword of hey i'm going to treat your constipation but at the same time Let's watch the uh, you know the veggie intake and what it may do to your your I N R, but that's something we still need to, need to be addressed. So high fiber foods in general are going to be important. Exercise is another big one. Doing different kinds of exercise to stimulate those abdominal wall muscles, which then can then kind of help with some of the motility
1: there as well. So Dr. Angelo, what are some of the patient groups that you would be hesitant to recommend self-care to that you would refer to a a healthcare provider?
0: Sure. If you've got a patient who complains of constipation that's been going on for quite some time, so I usually would draw the line around two weeks, Uh, I would definitely refer that patient. If it's um, someone who's got fever or signs of infection going along with it, any nausea, vomiting along with the constipation, I would probably lean towards referring. If they complain of stools that appear bloody... Or dark, and we talked about that as a possible upper GI bleed. I'd be worried
1: about that as well. So, in terms of redirect therapy, at least for me, I think about agents that are more kind of chronic, maintenance type medications or management versus some of our more acute, like I need to have a bowel movement fairly soon, kind of medications. Uh, you know, the first therapy that many people think about when they think of constipation or bulk-forming laxatives, and these are basically fiber products that add bulk to the stool that make it easier for peristalsis to happen because it's easier for the muscles of the GI tract to kind of grab onto the stool and move it along its path. Uh, So some of the very common agents that are bulk-forming laxatives include metamucil or psyllium. Fibrecon or polycarbophil, Citracell or methylcellulose, Benafiber, which is wheat dextrin. There's actually a lot of different products, and interestingly, these products can be both over-the-counter drug products and also dietary supplements, depending on what claims they make on the packaging.
0: Good point. And when we talk about these, it's um, important that we talk to patients about fluid intake. And so when you pick up one of these bottles, you'll see a warning uh, about taking this product without adequate fluid it could potentially cause swelling and blockage of the throat or esophagus. And so we don't want our patients choking as they're taking these products. And so making sure they are um, taking them with a full glass of water.
2: Yeah and again the nice thing about these as you mentioned you know they can be fairly innocuous and in that you can, you know, dissolve them into a juice or a water. Again, just make sure to read the directions on there as far as what you what you can and can't use them on.
0: So we can venture along into what's called hyperosmotic laxatives, and these are a little bit different. They help to pull water into the colon, and so we don't see a lot of systemic absorption with them, um, but they help move things through. And one of the big products we have on the market is the polyethylene glycol, or the PEG-3350, and Miralax is another brand name for that particular product.
1: And I love the brand name of Miralax because it looks like miracle laxative. And to be honest, of the laxatives that we have available to us, this is one of the preferred laxatives for kind of both chronic and more acute management, at least in the hospital setting in the ICU. We love Miralax. We use it a lot. It tends to not cause some of the really severe cramping that we see with some of the stimulant laxatives because it's not systemically absorbed. We don't have to worry about as much at least some of the systemic side effects of absorbing a bunch of electrolytes and things like that.
0: This was a prescription product for a long time, and I know we moved a lot of it uh, via prescription, and that was switched not too long ago. It like 2006 for uh, non-prescription use. So it's something we can be recommending to patients from a self-care capacity.
2: And again, just like with the bulk-forming laxatives above, like the Metamucil, this is in one cap full four to eight ounces of any beverage. It can be a hot beverage, cold beverage, room temperature. Just mix it in there, stir it up,
1: and and then drink it. So kind of the not so nice hyperosmotic laxative in terms of getting me excited about laxatives is the glycerin suppository. So the good news about suppositories is that they work very quickly. The bad news is that many patients aren't amenable to using suppositories because of the dosage form and how it's delivered to the patient. The glycerin itself can cause some rectal burning and itching. Again, it depends on kind of the patient, how comfortable they are with suppositories. Sometimes this can be recommended for children. They actually have a pedia lax Version where it's a pediatric specific laxative in a glycerin suppository form. It's
0: smaller in size than it an is, adult version.
1: Which makes sense, right? Typically, this is not going to be my first line agent, but if someone asked for a suppository, this is one of the ones that I would think about.
2: Yeah, so I think the next class we get to is another one that's fairly commonly used in regard, to, again, as least in my outpatient clinic, your emollient laxatives, which are commonly known as stool softeners. And, and what these do is they, you know, almost have to think of detergent. So you have something that's fatty mixed and something that's aqueous. So, example, we're thinking of oil on water to kind of allow that mixture to occur. And so we, you know, to allow that water to penetrate within to the stool and then allows it to disperse a little bit. And so that's kind of the, the same, maybe a little graphic, but way, way in which it works. And, uh, docusate is the big example. Either, uh, docusate will come in calcium or sodium salts, but same thing, either case really uh, probably a good idea to help with straining more than anything else. So if you're having you know, difficulty passing a stool, you know, given that, that straining that you can take to help soften and move it along versus a stimulant that it's going to push it along.
0: And some patients are on these fairly long term uh, for that stool softening effect, especially if they're on other
1: medications that can be causing constipation. Mm-hmm. So then the next drug class is uh, a lubricant laxative. And interestingly, this is really not one that's recommended by most resources that look at, you know, self care, such as the self care book that we use here at the university. Basically, these lubricant laxatives coat the stool, which kind of makes things a little bit slicker, but also helps prevent some of the water reabsorption in the colon. Mineral oil is going to be the main one that we have here. And the reason that, you know, many resources kind of don't like lubricant laxatives like mineral oil is if you give the oral version you worry about aspiration pneumonitis where if a patient does vomit the mineral oil and it ends up in the lungs it causes really severe irritation of the lung tissue also because it is a oily substance it can impair absorption of vitamins A, D, E, and K or fat soluble vitamins and if we give it the opposite way, the enema version of this, it's very, very messy. And um, it also causes itching of the, the rectum, and you get leakage of it because of the, the very oily substance that it is. So really, this is not a very commonly used agent. I would view this more commonly used as kind of elderly patients that are very used to this product, but it wouldn't be something that i would be recommending to patients first or second, probably even third line. So
0: also in the laxative category, or saline laxatives, and we talked about um, items like hyperosmotics, PEG 3350, and we mentioned that those were not systemically absorbed. But these saline laxatives, we do have to be careful because they are systemically
2: absorbed. Yeah, so there's a couple of examples of these. And so, yeah, since they are systemically absorbed, one of the big things to monitor for is the salts. So, these are all, a lot of these are different salt forms, um, magnesium based ones like mag hydroxide or milk of mag or mag citrate. And since they are, this could be simply absorbed but again, you could do hypermagnesemia. Maybe maybe something that could occur if you are continuing to overuse them. Milk of magnesia has both a liquid form and, or in a, a caplet as well, and can to be a nice choice if it's occasional and it's more acute. But this is something that is going to start working pretty quickly. Mm-hmm.
1: And then the the really quick one is going to be the mag citrate, and this is commonly available in what looks like a soda bottle. So it's like a glass bottle.
2: Yeah, pleasing lemony scent. It's it's one I, I always every time I see that I just kind of laugh a little bit.
0: I see these a lot in bowel preps, Mm -hmm. and so we tend to, when you get prescriptions in the pharmacy for patients going in for a bowel procedure and they have to do the pre-prep work, This is often on that list.
1: Yeah. And like you mentioned, Dr. Schumann, we do have to worry about the magnesium content of these in patients who have renal impairment. The amount of magnesium, especially in that mag citrate where you're drinking, you know, basically the bottle, it's a gigantic amount of magnesium in order to have a laxative effect. And it just happens that the body is really good about absorbing all that magnesium.
0: We also have the sodium phosphate salts. Um, so that's been interesting over the past couple of years as far as um, some of the safety concerns with that. The FDA issued a warning for the public regarding use of the sodium phosphate laxatives related to some of the issues around harm to the kidneys and the heart um, and deaths that have even been reported with this particular product. So that one is restricted to no more than three days of use. some of these um, concerns.
2: So again, it really reinforces that idea about keeping track of these medications and what their intended use is. Are they for PRN or for a a lifestyle medication? To be aware of those limitations so that, you know, you are continuing to follow up with the provider to find out what may be a more appropriate regimen. Again, if it is a medication or if it's not a pharmacologic, but what would be the, the best regimen for that long term?
1: And the, the next uh, laxative category are stimulant laxatives, and this is probably one of the most common categories that I see, at least in the hospital setting, and it comes in the form of Senna or Senacot. Uh, this is an oral tablet, um, and the way that these stimulant laxatives work is that they're irritating to the GI tract, and it kind of moves peristalsis along a little bit. So Senna is very, very common, very frequently used as kind of a daily, more maintenance type medication. Kind of a less maintenance more PRN medication, at least what I see in the hospital, is Bisacodyl or dulcolax. This does come also as an oral tablet, but for more acute management, it's available as a rectal suppository. So both of these work the same way. Kind of the downside to the stimulant effect is that you can get some of the cramping and bloating and things like that, really with any laxative, but um, these laxatives as well. And like I said, very, very commonly used. These are very old medications, and they're very available. So you'll commonly see, as an example, Senna with Dacusate as a combination product available over-the-counter, too.
0: And that gives you two different uh, mechanisms of action, and I think of our patients who are on chronic opioid therapy who deal with constipation, and this is something that we would see used um, for those individuals.
1: So in terms of what we're recommending, one thing is the dosage form consideration. So uh, depending on the acuity of how bad the patient wants to have a bowel movement, something like a suppository or an enema is going to work by far the quickest, but also may be unacceptable to some patients. In terms of some of the maintenance type therapies, well, at least for me, what I think of are our bulk forming laxatives like a Metamucil, Docusate, maybe a Miralax, but Miralax gets a little bit more expensive compared to some of our other options. And based on the -the over-the-counter labeling, it says that we should only be using these maintenance-wise for seven days without a referral from a physician. With that said, there's very little data that long-term laxative use is detrimental, but we do have to be concerned about overuse, especially in the elderly or in patients with um, eating disorders where they're using it to lose weight or because they have improper perceptions about what a normal bowel movement schedule is like.
2: And Dr. Uh, Kane, just to clarify, so I've heard a, a couple of providers every now and then will talk about the stimulant laxatives, the senesize, and talk about maybe a desensitization of the, uh, the nerve fibers there in the, in the GI system. Are you saying that that's, that's not really been shown to be of a major concern long term?
1: That's, that's definitely something that's thrown around a lot, but to my knowledge, there's no data that supports any kind of a, a rebound constipation effect, uh, from long term chronic maintenance of a stimulant laxative. Okay.
0: So this is one we also have special populations um, that we want to consider as we're treating constipation. And we brought up opioids, and so that's one I think that's that's very important because we have so many patients dealing with chronic opioid and pain management. And so making sure that we are giving them appropriate relief um, using the, the drugs that we have available and we talked about using a stimulant as well as a stool softener a stool softener alone is not going to do the trick um as dr kane says in class all mush no push and
2: then in pregnancy we've got a couple different options there so first line is probably going to be one of our bulk forming laxatives so again looking at something like our psyllium fiber or another one of our, our plant-based fibers, something like that. Or we could also consider using doxy, docusate. Again, docusate, more of a stool softener, and then it's going to be less of that, again, passing it through. But then as a second line, if one of those things doesn't work, or if they don't work in concert, then it's, um, a stimulant laxative or, or Miralax, or, poly, again, polyethylene
1: glycol. And then another special population are children. So uh, generally, any child less than two years of age really should be seen by a physician to be evaluated. As they get a little bit older, we can consider things like docusate, senna, even magnesium hydroxide. This is our milk of magnesia. So these are all reasonable options. Again, it kind of depends on uh, severity and uh, how chronic you think that you'll be taking the therapy and things like that. For me, magnesium hydroxide is more of kind of a PRN, not a daily uh, agent, whereas docusate could potentially be a more chronic medication for a patient.
0: then we brought up earlier our older patients and those with kidney disease, and so we do have to be careful. And the biggest uh, red flag that we would see are with the saline laxatives and making sure uh, we're we're not using those in those individual patients.
1: So just to touch on a couple of the key points from what we talked about today. Uh, For me, one of the key points is some of the newer warnings with the sodium phosphate-based enema. And the warning is that you shouldn't use more than one dose a day, and you shouldn't use it for more than three days. And the reason is that you're going to absorb all of that sodium and all that phosphate. And the problem is that that's going to cause dehydration, electrolyte problems, especially if you have renal impairment. People have ended up getting hurt by overusing this product, and that's a really important counseling point.
2: And one thing I always like to focus on is kind of the nature of PPIs versus the H2RA. So the PPIs are not a PRN, ideally. They're really Again, per the, and even per the packaging, once a day for 14 days, again, taking it scheduled, and then at that point you should uh, discontinue it and go ahead and you can repeat it again in four months.
0: And really focusing on those lifestyle changes. Yes, to totally. so Individuals with that chronic uh, heartburn or dyspepsia in that 14-day course, if they're not making changes in their diet, um, they're probably going to be revisiting those problems as soon as the 14 days are
2: up. Totally agree.
0: And I think, too, as we're talking about some of the things to treat heartburn and dyspepsia, that peptobismol or bismuth subsalicylate product, again, it's so important to pick up these products, look at the active ingredients, make sure we know what we're recommending. With that bismuth subsalicylate, that's converted to salicylic acid, so all the same warnings would apply as, as we would see with um, aspirin products. So making sure we are taking that and, and talking to our patients appropriately.
1: So for our listeners, we actually have kind of an updated website if you want to visit us at helixtalk.com. We've been adding a lot more information for each episode. You can listen to the episodes there. We love five-star reviews, and we're also on Twitter at helixtalk. Talk. So go ahead and follow us. You can use Twitter to see new episode updates and uh, things like that. So with that, I'm Dr. Kane.
2: I'm Dr. Schumann.
1: I'm Dr. Angelo. And as Dr. Patel would say, study hard.
2: If you enjoyed the show,
1: please help us climb
0: the iTunes rankings for medical podcasts by giving us a five-star review in the iTunes store. Search for Helix Talk and place your review there. To suggest an episode or contact us, we're online at helixtalk.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science.